Good morning, partner. You ready to hear a tale of the American Old West? Today is Sunday, the 20th day of August, 2017, and I've got a tale of a notorious scoundrel, a con man, a sure thing man who conned his way through the late 19th century. They called him Soapy. I'm going to tell his story on the 133rd episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. It's Sunday, it's time for coffee, and I'm your host and storyteller, Jeff Kelly. I hope you're all doing great out there. You know, on Monday, there's going to be a total solar eclipse in the U.S., and I'm heading south to see it in its full glory. I hope you get a chance to see it as well. Anyway, I want to thank the History Files' Nancy Fry for a couple of emails and story suggestions this week. You know, I love it when listeners send me information that adds to the story that I told earlier. You might remember a couple of weeks ago, I told the story of Bridget Driscoll, the first pedestrian to be killed by a car. As the automobile came towards her, she flashed her umbrella. While it didn't dawn on me how strange this action was, it did to Nancy Fry, who mentioned it to her husband and history expert, Gordon. He explained... Her actions of bringing up her parasol and flashing it or pumping it or some such action would be completely appropriate in the case of, say, a runaway carriage or even just a horse coming at her. The parasol being opened would spook the horse into either stopping or altering their course. I speak from experience here. I was once at a reenactment in New Mexico sitting on a horse talking to a couple who were sheltered from the rain under a porch overhang. When they were ready to move on... The woman suddenly popped open her umbrella, and I found myself, fortunately still on my horse, about ten feet away from where we had been standing. Luckily, there was no one in our way. My guess is the unfortunate victim of the motor car was doing exactly what she had been trained to do in such a situation, except that she hadn't counted on this newfangled technology. Machines don't act like horses. Thanks so much, Nancy and Gordon, for the information. And thank you, Nancy, for the future episode suggestions. Anyway, it's a beautiful day in Chicagoland, and I've got my coffee and a longish story to tell about the king of the Wild West conmen. This podcast is part of the SciCon Network. You can support this podcast and others like it by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash SciCon. That's C-S-I-C-O-N. A link can be found on the Coffee with Jeff website. Just a dollar or two is all it takes to keep these podcasts going. Thank you for your support. Last time I saw you, you were on a street in Denver, selling $20 bills wrapped around cakes of soap to the suckers for a dollar. <laughs> remember? Uh, sure. Sure, I remember. I'm still giving them away. <laughs> Jefferson Randolph Smith chuckled to himself. It was from his earlier street-selling line that he'd acquired his alias, Soapy Smith, a name that was to strike terror to the hearts of law-abiding citizens in Alaska. He was born Jefferson Randolph Smith II in Noonan, Georgia, on November 2, 1860, to Jefferson Randolph Smith I and Emily Dawson Edmondson. 
He was the grandson of a plantation owner and a popular Georgia senator and legislator. His father was an attorney, and the family was well-educated, and they were wealthy. But that all changed at the end of the Civil War, when the Smiths found themselves in financial ruins. Hoping to get a fresh start, they moved to Round Rock, Texas. It was in Round Rock in 1878, when Jefferson was 18 years old, that he witnessed the killing of outlaw Sam Bass. It was also around this time that his mother passed away. The young Jefferson had fine manners, was very articulate and extremely persuasive, which were the perfect qualities to be a confidence man, or a sure-thing man as they were known back then. According to historian Bill Barley on the TV show Gold Trails and Ghost Towns, when he was in his 20s, he was working as a cowboy, moving cattle down the Chisholm Trail. After one of these long cattle drives, he returned to San Antonio, Texas with all his hard-earned money in his pocket. He went to a fair, and, and at the fair he came across a man working the shell game. You know, three walnuts and a pea. Didn't take long before he lost all his money that he'd worked so hard for all season. But Smith wasn't mad. He saw an opportunity. He worked for months to get all that money, and within an hour, the man with the walnut shells had it all. This seemed like a far better way to make a living. And it wasn't long before he became an expert on working the shell game himself, but that was only the beginning for the man who would be known as Soapy Smith. Like I said, this was according to Bill Barley. I say that because he's the only one I found to tell that story. I have read that his great-grandson, Jeff Smith, who has done extensive research on Soapy, said he never worked as a cowboy. He began work as a salesman, first honestly and then not so honestly, and he began to see how easy it was to trick people out of their hard-earned money. However it happened, Jefferson, or Jeff as he liked to be called, began making a living as a scoundrel, a confidence man, a bunco man, whatever you want to call it. He began with the shell game and three-card Monty. And the way Jeff played these games, they could never be called a game of chance. He began in Fort Worth, Texas, but quickly legislation was passed specifically aimed at stopping Soapy's activities. So he moved on to bigger and better things. He settled in Denver, and that's where he began putting together what may be America's first crime organization, or at least the first in the Old West. He found others, like himself, who had been drifting through the West, cheating people as they went. Denver at the time was the perfect place for a bunco organization, with its wide-open policies towards gambling and a train depot that was bringing in fresh victims on a daily basis. Around 1833, he began selling little bars of soap. He would set up a little stand on, on a street corner with these bars of soap, selling them for a dollar or five dollars a bar. Now that might seem a little expensive, but there was a hook. He would tell the gathering crowd that to increase his sales, he's hidden money underneath some of the wrappers. One out of ten bars might contain a $10, a $20, or even a $50 bill. Soon someone from the crowd would step up and offer to buy a bar of soap. And sure enough, the purchaser would look inside and find a $50 bill. He would gleefully yell, laugh, and run around bragging about his winnings. Soon every dirty gold miner was buying a bar of soap, hoping to get lucky. 
Of course, the man who found the $50 bill was a shill, a man working for Jefferson. And that's how he got his nickname, Soapy. He didn't like this name. His friends called him Jeff. It was those that didn't care for him that called him Soapy. The residents of the town that Soapy and his gang operated in knew exactly what they were up to, and Soapy knew better than to take advantage of them. His marks were miners and people traveling through the area. Being a member of the community was important if he was to stay in business. He gave to local charities and helped out the poor and the needy. Soapy Smith was a man who preferred to use his brains rather than weapons whenever possible, though he would use force if he felt it was necessary. The men who worked in his operation were all extremely loyal, and most of the local law enforcement and politicians were taking his bribes. On the darker side, it is said that he liked to drink and drink hard, and when he did, he could become an angry and mean man. Soon he had his own gambling hall, the Travoli Club, and he was involved in every illegal undertaking in town. He had all sorts of businesses, including a fake policy and lottery house, auction houses with expensive-looking but cheap imitation watches, fake mining and mineral investment offices that offered stocks in phony mining companies, and of course, you could always find a game of poker. And sometime during this period in Denver, he got married to a woman named Mary Noonan. The two would have three children together, but very little is written about their life together. Of course, there was occasional trouble, like the time he allegedly swindled a couple of people traveling through town out of $1,500, which was a lot of money back in the Old West. They took him to court, but Soapy, always the smooth talker, speaking in his own defense explained that his gambling business was an institution of public education designed to cure the compulsive gambler. He said it was just like the Keeley Institution, a commercial medical operation started by Dr. Leslie Keeley in 1879 that offered a treatment to alcoholics. He said, I should be recognized as a public benefactor. Jefferson Smith was acquitted of all charges. More trouble followed, however, when a local newspaper reported that he had been married, something that he tried to keep quiet as he wanted to keep his family and business separate. When the news broke that he had a wife and kids, their straight-laced neighbors shunned his wife. After sending his family to St. Louis to live, he walked into the newsprinting company with a walking stick and gave the president of the company, Colonel John Atkins, a thorough caning that resulted in a skull fracture. Soapy was tried for attempted murder, but explained to the court that if he wanted to kill Atkins, he would have used something more suitable than a walking stick. Again, Smith was acquitted, but knew it was time to get out of town. He traveled all over the West for a while before settling in Creed, Colorado, where he opened the Orleans Club. That's where he ran into outlaw Robert Ford. Ford was the man who shot Jesse James in the back while James was straightening a pitcher in his home. He owned the Ford's Exchange, a combination of saloon, casino, and brothel, which was in competition with Soapy's Club. On June 8, 1892, Edward O'Kelly entered Ford's tent saloon with a shotgun. Ford's back was turned. 
O'Kelly said, Hello, Bob. And as Ford turned around to see who it was, Kelly fired both barrels, killing Ford instantly. It was rumored, but never proven, that O'Kelly was working for Soapy Smith. After that, Soapy controlled most of the saloons in Creed. The only one that he didn't control was managed by the infamous Bat Masterson. One of his greatest cons in Creed was McGinty, the prehistoric man. No one is really sure how he got a hold of a ten-foot statue or some say mummy of what looked like a primitive human. He said he got it from some miners who dug it up, and now he charged a dime to see it. He wasn't really looking to make a whole lot of dimes from his customers. He just wanted them to play a little three-card Monty or shell game while they waited to see his exhibit. In 1893, after a fire raged through Creed, destroying many buildings, including the Orleans Club, Soapy decided to return to Denver, hearing that it had relaxed its restrictions on gambling. Things picked up right where they had let off, with Soapy running the Travolti Club and all the illicit activities that he had done in the past. Soapy's power grew to the point that he admitted to the press that he was a con man and saw nothing wrong with it. In 1896, he told a newspaper reporter, I consider bunco steering more honorable than the life led by the average politician. What he didn't count on was Colorado's new governor, David Hanson Waite, getting involved. Waite was trying to clean up Denver and began firing officials he thought were not abiding by his new mandates. Some refused to leave City Hall, and the governor called the state militia. Soapy, of course, was on the side of the corrupt officials and was given the title Deputy Sheriff. He and several of his men climbed to the top of City Hall's central tower with rifles and dynamite ready to fend off any attackers. The state militia brought with them two cannons and two Gatling guns. For a while, it looked like the City Hall war was going to be bloody. Through the day, orders were given to fire, but then the orders were reversed before gunfire began, fearing the lives of innocent bystanders. Luckily for everyone, the standoff ended peacefully. It was settled in court. Governor Waite agreed to withdraw the militia and allow the Colorado Supreme Court to decide the case. The court ruled that the governor had authority to replace the commissioners, but he was reprimanded for bringing in the militia. While Soapy took this as a victory, he couldn't stop the city from reforming, and his empire began to crumble. It was time for Soapy to leave once again. Before he left, he was charged with attempted murder. Apparently, him and a friend had beat a saloon manager. Soapy managed to escape, but he was a wanted man in Colorado. He drifted around for a while. At one point, he offered to raise a mercenary army of American fighters for American dictator Porfirio Diaz for $80,000, but that never happened. In 1898, he settled in Skagway, Alaska. Skagway was one of those places that no one ever thought about. In fact, before 1897, it had a population of one, prospector Captain Billy Moore. That changed, however, with the discovery of gold. The Klondike Gold Rush turned Skagway into a lawless boomtown, described by one member of the Northwest Mounted Police as little better than hell on earth. His arrival in Skagway didn't start too well, and it lasted only for a couple of months. 
after he attempted to get things going with a little three-card Monty and P and Shell game on the White Pass Trail, he was encouraged by miners to leave. He came back in late January 1898 with six of his former cronies and began gathering other shady individuals for his takeover. One of his biggest scams was a fake telegraph office. He would take money from travelers to send messages home. The only problem was Soapy's wires didn't go any further than the walls of his building. It would actually be years before Skagway had a real telegraph. Sometimes he would even give fake replies, and no one ever seemed to notice that there were no telegraph lines going into Skagway. And if one didn't lose their money with the telegraph, there were friendly games of poker around, all arranged so new players would never walk away a winner. Soapy eventually had his own saloon, which he called Jeff Smith's Parlor, and it would eventually be nicknamed the Real City Hall. For new arrivals, Soapy could be a newspaper reporter, a clergyman, or whatever would separate them from their money. He always encouraged his minions to scam people moving through town, not local residents. Soapy would befriend new arrivals and determine the best way to get their money be it dishonest shipping companies, hotel, gambling's dens, whatever, until they were wiped out. In the event a traveler seemed like he was going to make trouble for the gang, Soapy would appear and offer to pay his way back to civilization and encourage them to forget about pursuing gold. He would say it's infinitely better that any man who is such an infant as to try to beat a man at his own game should lose his money here in the seaport than he should bet on the inhospitable Arctic, or such an idiot would lose it anyway, or be a burden on the community. Soapy was always smart enough to make himself part of the community, to keep the support of those who lived in town. Shortly after he arrived, a bartender named John Frey was being held for a double murder, and a lynch mob was preparing for vigilante justice. Smith and his men got involved and hid Frey until he could be turned over to the U.S. Marshal at Sitka, Alaska, which was the capital at the time. He also raised $1,500 to help the widows of the murdered men. And so to the people of Skagway, Smith represented law and order. He always urged his men to keep violence to a minimum and avoid killing whenever possible. His charm was so great that the Skagway correspondent of the New York world called him the most gracious, kind-hearted man I have ever met. To know him is to like him. Of course, if Soapy couldn't charm a newspaper man, a simple bribe would do the trick. All was going good until a prostitute was killed when she found a man robbing her room. A friend of the prostitute claimed the murderer was one of Soapy's gang. This put a group of concerned citizens who called themselves the Committee of 101 into action. They put up a notice stating, Warning! A warning to the wise should be sufficient. All confident sharks, bunko men, and sure thing men, and all other objectionable characters are notified to leave Skagway and the White Pass Road immediately and to remain away. Failure to comply with this warning will be followed by prompt action. And it was signed by the Committee of 101. Soapy quickly put up his own notice, stating, 
The body of men styling themselves as the Committee of 101 are hereby notified that any overt act committed by them will be promptly met by law-abiding citizens of Skagway, and each member and their property will be held responsible for any unlawful act on their part. The Law and Order Committee of 317 will see that justice is dealt out to the fullest extent and no blackmailers or vigilantes will be tolerated. Signed, Law and Order Committee of 317. Soapy's power and influence grew and he walked through the streets of Skagway like a king as he continued to endear himself with the citizens of the town. He built the first church in Skagway, and when the Spanish-American War broke out, he organized the Skagway Guard and offered their services to American President William McKinley. But like all frontier towns, things began to change. By July 1898, the population of Skagway was around 15,000, with many families that wished for a decent environment for their children. There were also many new businesses, including merchants, craftsmen, and restaurateurs, many concerned with the town's evil reputation. John Douglas Stewart was a Klondike miner who walked into Skagway with a sack of gold on July 7, 1898. Stewart met a man named Old Man Tripp, who warned him about unscrupulous money changers. He told Stewart the man he could trust to give him a fair deal was one Jefferson Smith. He took him to Soapy's parlor, and after a few drinks, he was invited to see a captive eagle that Soapy had. He entered a room with Soapy, his eagle, and a few of Soapy's men. One thing led to another, and Stuart was knocked to the ground unconscious. When he woke up, he was alone with the eagle, and his gold was gone. Stuart rushed back to the bartender at Smith's parlor in a panic and told him all about it. The bartender said it was just a joke and his gold would be returned. Not believing him, he went to the deputy marshal Taylor who told him it would be investigated. But really, the marshal didn't seem too interested. After that, Stuart began telling anyone who would listen about his troubles. C.A. Selbreed, a United States commissioner, summoned Smith and told him that if he had the gold, returning it would save a lot of trouble. Smith said that if any of his men had the gold and gave it back, he would cut their damn ears off, stating that Stewart lost it fair and square in a shell game. The committee of 101 went into action. Soapy was at his parlor having a drink when he heard the Vigilance Committee was organizing a meeting at Juneau Wharf. He thought that, of all the people in Skagway, he should be at the meeting. He decided it was time to settle the matter once and for all, and if his charm didn't work, the Winchester rifle he carried would. He walked up to the dock, angry and drunk. Two guards jumped over the railing and took cover. A man named Frank Reed stood in his way. Smith stopped and swung his rifle around. Reed's hand pushed the rifle barrel aside and he pulled out a revolver and pulled the trigger. The gun misfired. Smith pointed his Winchester at Reed's groin and fired, and at the same time, Reed fired another shot and then another. The first bullet hit Soapy's heart. Legend has it that Soapy's last words were, My God, don't shoot. That's the story of what's called Shootout at Juneau Wharf, but the truth is, no one is really sure what happened on the dock that evening, 
or who fired first, or how many bullets were fired, or even who actually did the shooting. Doesn't really matter. Jefferson Randolph Smith II was dead, probably before he hit the ground. Someone yelled, Smith is killed, and the news quickly spread through the town. Reed died 12 days later with a bullet in his leg and groin area. The three gang members who robbed Stewart received jail sentences. Soapy Smith was buried several yards outside the city cemetery. If you take a trip to Skagway today, you can have a tour and see Soapy's saloon as well as his grave. At the dock, Soapy Smith walked rapidly past the two outer guards. Two revolvers hung from his belt and a repeating Winchester lay in the crook of his arm. Behind him trailed a group of his henchmen. Hey, wait a minute, Soapy. Where are you going? There's Reed up ahead. I want to see him. You can't come any further. You're at the bottom of this trouble, Reed. You kept your nose out of my business. I wouldn't have had to come down here to break up this little meeting. As King approached, he saw Soapy Smith strike Frank Reed with the butt of the rifle. Gosh. And as Reed fell, one of the men in back of Smith raised a rifle to kill the man who'd fallen under the blow. King hurled himself at the gunman, whose finger was ready on the trigger. Has anybody got a match? Thanks. Now I can light an old gold and listen to the sad sack. So I'll keep my wrap-up short because today's story ran a little long. The only thing I'm curious about is whatever happened to his wife and children. Now I know his great-grandson, who goes by the name of Jeff Smith, wrote a book called Alias Soapy Smith, The Life and Death of a Scoundrel, which I haven't read yet. I discovered it late in my research, but I, I'm, I'm tempted to because I'm hoping that he sheds a little more light on what happened to them. As far as I can tell, they just stayed back in St. Louis and lived there. I mean, what was their reaction when they heard that Soapy had died at the age of 37? I mean, how long did it take for that information to even get to them if they were still in St. Louis and he was in Alaska? One last thing, and I bring this up every now and again, like all these stories of the Old West and things that happened long ago, every biographer has their own version of what happened and... Everyone is slightly different, often with conflicting information. So I did my best to sort it all out, and I'm sure some of it's not quite right. And if you have more information on Soapy Smith or the things that he had done, please, you know, send them my way at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com. And now the ending credits. We at the Psycon Network have a Patreon page, which you can use to show your support for our network. Just go to Psycon.fm, that's C-S-I-C-O-N.fm, and look for the link at the top, and it'll, it'll take you right to our Patreon page, and you can make a monthly donation that'll keep us going. And, and thanks to everybody who already supports the show. You know, speaking of Saikon, while you're there, check out a few of our other shows. You'll find an amazing amount of geek culture. You know, you can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason. If you want to complain, give me information or say hi, that would be fantastic. You can also follow me on Twitter. My name is Coffee with Jeff, all one word. And I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page that I would love you to join. Your story ideas are always welcome, and you can leave them at any of those places. If you want to support the show but you don't have the coin, and I understand, then just go over to iTunes and leave a review or a couple of stars or something. That really helps the show gain in popularity, and you would make me so damn happy. And remember, all the links that I used to write today's show can be found at Psycon's Coffee with Jeff page for this episode. 
Again, that's CSICON.FM. Well, I'd like to thank Brecky Tomlinson for having this podcast on the Psycon Network. My wife of 33 years for being my wife of 33 years. Kelly Rickard for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme. David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo. And to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. And a special shout out to all those that reposts on Facebook and Twitter. You have a special place in my heart. I'll be back in two weeks with another exciting show. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. Coffee. Coffee with Jeff.